Hello, this is Radio Free Flint. You're listening to Arthur Bush. Today's episode is with author Gregory Fernier, who's written a book about serial killer John Norman's Collins. Mr. Collins operated around the University of Michigan campus in Ann Arbor in the late 1960s. He was convicted of killing a young lady and sentenced to life in prison without parole. Mr. Collins' crimes is believed to kill several other women, both in Michigan and as well as California, uh, gripped the state of Michigan and the nation in the vastness of and the brutality of his killings. John Norman Collins gave rise to the term serial killer. Before that, we never really referred to them as serial killers. This Radio Free Flint podcast comes to you by way of anchor.fm. We also have a website which is located at www.radiofreeflint.media. That's www.radiofreeflint.media where you can see this episode in video or follow any other podcasts that episodes that we've released. And we hope that you would do so. Also, Uh, We plan to put out a newsletter in the near future, and if you'd like to uh, get a copy of our newsletter once a month, uh, please go to the website and subscribe, or you can just send us an email, and uh, we'll take care of it that way. Thanks again for joining us. Here's the episode. Okay, you're listening to Radio Free Flint. Uh, today, my guest is Gregory Fournier, a retired professor who lives in one of the greatest weather places in the United States, San Diego, California. Welcome, Greg. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, uh, Greg, uh, you uh, this is your second round here with me, and you're the first author that I've invited back twice. So uh, either that says I'm hard up for guests or you're really good. And uh, my audience really liked your uh, your uh, time with us when you talked to us about the Purple Gang, and uh, so I thought I, I thought I'd work on another book that you did, uh, although it's a couple of years ago. Uh, it's a fascinating case. Uh, it's an unsolved murder, the John Norman Collins case, and I'd like to uh, talk to you yeah. about that. You you wrote a book about it. Yeah, Karen uh, Salani. John Norman Collins Unmasked. And the unmasked part is that I don't feel that there was ever a good uh, account of, uh, of who he was and, uh, you know, how he got that way. And, uh, uh, and it, it's actually been pretty well received. The first book that came out, uh, I hate to give a plug for it, but it's called The Michigan Murders. And uh, the guy who wrote that wrote it five years after the fact. Uh, and I wrote my book over 50 years after the fact. So I had the benefit of, of hindsight. But I also had the benefit of being on the campus at the time, understanding the, the campus culture, 
being in uh, that neighborhood, which was just south of uh, uh, Eastern Michigan University's uh, campus. And, uh, you know, the students called it the student ghetto because so the homes were You were living, old. you were, you at one time lived in Ypsilanti at the same time that John Norman Collins lived there. We were uh, students at Eastern. He was a year ahead of me, but he lived a block down the street from me. And before I knew about him and any of this, uh, you know, ugly business, uh, I had had a couple of, uh, I don't want to call them run-ins, but encounters with him. And uh, they were always negative. And, uh, uh, you know, one time he took a, a swing at me. Actually, he was trying to clothesline me while I was walking down the street. Um, <clears throat> Well, and I turned around real quick, you know, to get in a, in a defensive position because I didn't want the guy to jump me from behind. Uh, I didn't know what was going on. And uh, and he just kept walking and walking and walking. I, I watched him uh, walk to his home. Or, well, he was renting a room in a small little boarding house. And uh, so I knew where he lived then. But I, again, did not know... <laughs> Uh, what he was up to and very few people uh, knew what he was up to but uh, well, what he was up to is murder he murdered as far as I can discern seven women and he put many more women young women uh, in harm's way uh, asking them to get on his motorcycle or get in his car you know let's go here and there um, and a lot of them just felt, uh, I've spoken to a good many of these ladies, and they just had a kind of a, an uneasy feeling about him, you know, a bad vibe. But on the other hand, there were people I've spoken to that did get on the motorcycle. He didn't murder them. Uh, uh, and... And a lot, some would say, you know, he seemed like a nice guy, but he had no trouble getting a date. He didn't have to kill these women to have sex with them, uh, to put it bluntly. And uh, uh, so it, it comes down, and I'm going to just jump to the chase and, uh, with my opinion, and that's all it is, uh, is that John Collins was a, uh, uh, a control killer uh there's a term for it i just had it and it slipped out of my mind power and control and i think that appealed to him a lot and he had many chips on his shoulder but i think he had a big one here from a domineering mother and he was the third child uh, of a divorce and you know, I'm going to uh, venture to say that uh, he was the third child. He was an, the unwanted child. Um, and there's background that I, I give in the book about his father and his mother. Yeah, um, let's, uh, let's, let's go back here for just a second and set okay. the stage. Uh, uh, this, this guy became famous. In fact, uh, some people think that he gave definition to what was his the, the term serial killer which until he the 60s we really never had that in our lexicon in michigan or 
anywhere else, did we? No, it, they were called multiple murders, multiple murderer at the time. And it wasn't until a, a, a few years later, the golden age of serial killers uh, would be the 1970s through the 1980s. And all of the, the big names that we're all so familiar with, and they've had book after book and video after video on them. Uh, John well, Norman Collins well, was was uh, he roamed the streets in the in the late sixties. Yes, uh huh. He was before them, and I dare say that he was the prototype uh, for Ted Bundy. If you you know study both of those serial killers, you'll find that Bundy was so much like Collins psychologically, uh, socially, uh, you know, both were ambitious. Uh, you know, they, there were differences, of course, but how he killed and uh, who he killed, very similar, because they, they always, uh, you know, went for either the college-aged young woman or in Col John Collins's case, he killed two teenagers, a 14-year-old, and a, a, a person who was 16, but she had only been 16 for 20 days. So essentially she was 15 years old. So now, uh, now Collins was a student uh, as well, Eastern, right? Yes, he was an English student who was trying to get his uh, uh, credential in uh, elementary education. Uh, the, you've got the primary, you know, the, the early grades, and then you've got the, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth grades, in some cases, seventh grade. Uh, so he was going for the, uh, uh, you know, younger students, and he wanted to be a, uh, uh, a PE teacher and with an English uh, endorsement. And, you know, it makes it a lot easier to get a job uh, if, if you uh, can teach something else. And, but he his, I think his main uh, ambition there was to be a coach and work with kids. Now he Collins also uh, fit in at, at East in the Eastern Michigan University community at the time. Yeah, and I can give you a, a little uh, scenario about that or synopsis, I should say. Uh, he did his first year of college at Central Michigan University in Mount Pleasant. His brother went there. His brother was, I think, three or four years older. And uh, he lived with his, in his brother's house of where, where he was renting. Uh, but that first year, he just didn't like it, didn't feel comfortable in Mount Pleasant. And so he wanted to get closer to home. And because he was pining for his high school girlfriend who, they had broken up and he couldn't get over it. You know, a very common story. You know, the, the man just can't face the fact that she's not interested anymore. Or, you know, doesn't feel comfortable uh, with him. And uh, so he got back uh, uh, closer by coming to Eastern Michigan, which was about 50 miles from his home in Centerline. Uh, a little bit north of Detroit. Uh, Centerline is kind of city within a city, I think, uh, uh, within Warren, Michigan. Right. 
and he uh, would have, you know, he could ride with a, his motorcycle uh, uh, and in an hour or less be home. Uh, and uh, he tried to get back uh, with his girlfriend once he got back to Ypsilanti. That had to be in 1966. And uh, he asked her out on a date, and I talk about it in the book. Um, and he says, do you think we you could get back together again? Um, and basically, she said no. So I think he felt like he had the rejection by, of his mother on the one hand and the rejection with the girlfriend on the other. And I don't think that he was emotionally, psychologically uh, able to get over either one of those things. And I Somewhere, think he developed yeah. anger to a point of murder. Wow. Now, he was, a, he was in a fraternity, I read someplace. He was the Theta Chi, which was the animal house fraternity on Eastern's campus. And there were a bunch of jacks who were dedicated to party and hardy, drinking a lot of alcohol. And bagging women. I'm trying to think of a better way to say it, but that's essentially what it was. And of course, when the new freshman class comes in, they hold these uh, uh, keggers and so on. And they draw a lot of you know young women to these. So there'd be a crowd, three, 400 people. They'd have to close the street. And, uh, and so I think he saw that as, uh, as a way to, to meet women. Greg, uh, this case, this case drew more than a, a little attention in Michigan at the time, because I remember when I was a kid, this scared the hell out of a lot of people. Well, this was sad. And the reason I named the book the way I did, Terror in Ypsilanti, was because uh, the fear was profound and widespread there more than anywhere. Um, and I've had so many people who were children at the time uh, remember their parents not letting them go out of the house, uh, just being very protective clamping down on them and that leaves a big impression on a on a young kid yeah um, now you would think that uh somebody who was you know becoming a household name within southeastern michigan would have been somebody whose dirty deeds if you will uh would have carried him into infamy for a long time but his fame really was short-lived and you know i have a theory i believe it's more than a theory on why and it was because how his case was handled and uh neil fink and joseph lewis l uh, detroit lawyers were were his lawyers and uh they uh, neil in particular was a very tenacious lawyer and uh you know he'd object at the top of, you know, uh, 
you know, just something come up, bang, he'd be on it. Uh, so it was not a real smooth trial. But the real story for Collins not being better known has to uh, go to the prosecutor in uh, Washtenaw County. And he had, uh, the year before, uh, had a man who was a killer of two homosexual youths. And uh, he lived in, uh, his name was Ralph Nuss, and he, he lived in Ann Arbor, I think. And uh, one of the kids uh, he killed was, uh, you know, kids 18, 19, 20 uh, years of age, was from Ipsy. And the other was from, of all places, Windsor, Ontario. And uh, he was convicted of, of those murders. And then there was some kind of change in the Michigan court procedures or in the sentencing law. I'm not exactly certain what that uh, circumstance was. You know, at the top of my head, I, I could find out. But uh, And so Ness, uh, uh, because of the changes in sentencing and so on, his lawyer got him off. And uh, so Delhi, the uh, prosecutor in Ann Arbor, uh, wanted, you know, to put him back behind bars. He was still a dangerous man as far as he was concerned. And Nuss was able to walk on that. And part of the reason is that uh, there was uh, both of the, of the murders uh, were, were tried together. And so to, he didn't have a second case to fall back on. So by trying to go after Nuss again was double jeopardy and he got out. Okay, now talking about Collins. When that case came out, uh, the prosecutor remembered what had happened just a, a year previous. And he made the decision to only prosecute Collins for one of the murders. And I don't think he thought of the larger aspect of it in that to be officially FBI certified ser ser sorry, serial killer, uh, you have to have three separate murders with a cooling off period, uh, similar MOs, and there were four or five different categories, okay? So Collins, was only tried for one of the cases, even though there were other very strong cases. Delhi there were six won. other, were there six other victims? There were six other victims, and one of them was from uh, California. And that was a slam dunk case, uh, which I talk about in the book, and it involves Governor Ronald Reagan and Governor William Milliken. Uh, and Milliken would not extradite Collins, even though there was a better case in California. And he would yeah, have gotten- they, Did they have the death penalty then? He would have gotten the death penalty if he had been convicted. But there's no question uh, that the, the uh, prosecutors out there had uh, 
all the evidence they needed, physical and circumstantial evidence. Uh, so at any rate, uh, two, three of the other uh, Michigan murders, uh, Delhi could have uh, brought a case for them, but he wasn't aware of, you know, how history would, his decision would tend to uh, cloak Collins in some anonymity uh, because he, if he had been a serial killer, other people would have written about him and, you know, he would have been right with the, oh. the rest of, of uh, the, the infamous serial killers. When your book came uh, out, it, I'm sorry, I talked over top. <clears throat> Excuse me. When, when your book came out in 2016, it sort of stirred up the hornet's nest a little bit, and there became some interest in, in the DNA evidence that had been developed. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the Detroit Free Press, or might have been you, discovered that at least uh, two samples, DNA samples from two, two of the victims, had never been tested. They, well, had, they had possession of it, but they didn't proceed to do testing for some reason. Uh, Collins, uh, uh, to talk about that first, uh, continually refused to give DNA until it was uh, state law that all prisoners had to, you know, give saliva and or blood samples, whatever. Uh, but by the time they uh, came around to DNA, one of the cases, <clears throat> uh, a, a family uh, brought the case with the, the DNA, and uh, well, they brought the case, and uh, somebody else was determined to have killed that, that victim, and it was assumed that Collins killed Jane Mixer. <clears throat> and... Uh, DNA evidence in the 1980s, I believe it was, uh, proved that the person who had murdered uh, Mixer was someone else. So that's the one DNA aspect. Now, the other uh, that I heard from Sheriff, Washtenaw County Sheriff uh, uh, Doug Harvey was that they found DNA on the hosiery of the next to the last victim. Her name was Alice Callum or Cologne. I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. And uh, apparently she had been riding on the back of his motorcycle in a short skirt. And he had reached back and, you know, touched her on the thigh with, you know, sweaty hands. So he got epithelials on her pantyhose but that was never there was never a match because...